Hello and welcome to the King's Arms Online. It is my pleasure to be able to speak to you today. Well, actually, usually I say it's my pleasure, but I have to be honest, it has been a mind-blowing, heart-wrenching and faith-stretching experience to do the message for today. We're looking at a section in Mark's Gospel describing the crucifixion of Jesus, and I tell you, this has been no easy task. This moment in time we're going to look at is a pivot point for all of human history. It's the most important event to ever have happened. Whether or not you have a personal relationship with Jesus, the impact of the crucifixion has been felt throughout humanity ever since and shaped our society's thinking today throughout the whole world. As I started looking at this passage, it felt to me a bit like when I go for a swim in my favourite place in the Lake District. Crumlock Water is two and a half miles long and while shallow around the edges, it, it shelves off to be around 44 metres deep in the middle. As you swim out, you really get a sense of the expanse opening up before you and you feel smaller and smaller as you swim out into the vast volume of water. As we plunge into this passage, it's a bit like taking a dip in a deep, deep lake that's breathtaking, it's awe-inspiring, yet at the same time, it's slightly intimidating. It's navigable, but so vast it can feel unreachable. So we're gonna read this section together and then I'll try and take us through what I think God is bringing to life for us today. So Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The, the notice written on the charge against him read the King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi! Lema Sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone run, fill a sponge with vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem were also there. Wow. 
This is what I love about God's word. This passage alone is so rich with truth, with points for us to delve into, to debate, explore, things we can learn about God, his plan stretching back from the beginning of time right through to eternity. All the things that happened around the crucifixion of Jesus are captured right here. The different responses of people, what happened in the heavens, in the heart of Jesus, in the Trinity. It's an enormous study, rich in meaning. We could look at the nature and significance of the crucifixion itself, the humiliation of the cross, the curse it was in the Jewish culture to die this way. We could look over prophecies relating to the darkness that covered the earth, what this meant and why. We could explore the different responses to people witnessing the same events, the mockers, those who loved Jesus, those who hung on the cross with him. We could dig into the significance of the women being the only bystanders at the crucifixion, burial and resurrection for the validation of these momentous occasions. All of this would be just for starters, with plenty of room for a main course and afters. I figured that we need to stop piling our plates at some point and actually start eating. So we're going to zoom in on just one verse to see what we can get from that. And then we'll step back again to look at the wider application of this passage detailing the crucifixion. While I was reading this passage and asking God what to do with it, the verse that most caught my attention was when Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This phrase made me stop in my tracks and ask myself, what is going on here? What is it that Jesus is experiencing? It seems as if this is the moment. This is that point in history that we've been driving towards, the mission of the Trinity. My sin, your sin, the fate of all of humankind cascading into this instant. This phrase made me stop in my tracks and ask myself, what actually is going on here? What is Jesus experiencing? It seems as if this is the moment. This is that point in history that we've been driving towards, the, the mission of the Trinity, my sin, your sin, the fate of all of humankind cascading into this instant. So to help us work out what's happening, let's establish what isn't happening first. When Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? He cannot mean that the eternal communion between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit was broken. God could not cease to be triune. There is nothing in scripture to suggest this could ever be the case. In fact, quite the opposite, given the everlasting nature of God and that God from the beginning and into eternity is three in one. I also don't think it means that the Father stopped loving the Son. In this moment, Jesus as a Son is offering the greatest act of love a Father could receive. That bond, the, the love of Jesus for the Father, the Father's love for the Son is fundamental to this mission. Therefore, it could not have been broken here. Nor could it mean, I think, that the Holy Spirit has ceased to minister to the Son. He had come down upon him at the time of his baptism, not merely for a fleeting moment, but to remain on him, as we read in John 1.32. And he would be there to the last as the eternal spirit through whom the Son has offered himself to God, according to Hebrews 9.14. There is no mention of the Holy Spirit leaving and returning. And lastly, I don't think that these words are a cry of despair. Despair would have been sin. Even in the darkness, God was my God. And though there was no sign of him, and though the pain obscured his promises, somewhere I believe in, in the depths of his soul, 
there remained the assurance that God was holding him. Listen to what is written about Abraham in Romans 4 when recounting his response, promising that he would be the father to many, despite him and his wife Sarah being childless at the time. Romans reads, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. If this is true of Abraham, as is recorded in the book of Romans, it will certainly be true of Jesus. I don't believe that he lost his faith or his focus in that moment. Yet, despite all these stakes in the ground, so to speak, this was a real forsaking. Jesus did not merely feel forsaken, he was forsaken. And not only by his disciples, but by God himself. It was the Father who had delivered him unto Jesus, to Judas, pardon me, to the Jews, to Pilate, and finally to the cross itself. And now, when he had cried out, God had closed his ears. The crowd had not stopped jeering. The demons had not stopped taunting. The pain had not abated. Instead, every circumstance bespoke the anger of God. There was no countering voice. This time, no word came from heaven to remind him that he was God's son greatly loved. No dove came down to assure him of the Spirit's presence and ministry. No angel came to strengthen him. No redeemed sinner bowed to thank him. In this moment, it is not that he bears some vague relation to sinners. It is that he is one of us. In fact, he is all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was condemned to bear its curse and he has no cover. No one can serve as his advocate. Nothing can be offered to make amends. He must bear all and God will not and cannot spare him until the ransom is paid in full. The sufferings of his soul, as the old theologians used to say, were the soul of his suffering. Public, though the cry was, it expressed an intensely private anguish of a tension between the sin-bearing son and his heavenly father. The culmination of sin at its most dreadful. God forsaken by God. Douglas MacLeod, a Scottish theologian, puts it like this. He stands where none have stood before or since, enduring at one tiny point in space and time all that sin deserved. Never before has anything come between him and his father, but now the sin of the whole world has come between them. It is not that Abba is not there. He is there as the judge of the whole earth, who could condone nothing and not even spare his own son. 
Tim Keller beautifully captures this transaction of the moment. He writes, this forsakenness, this loss, was between the father and the son who had loved each other from all of eternity. This love is infinitely long, absolutely perfect. And Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment on that day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us instead fell on Jesus. I don't know about you, but just as we go through this, even right now, even though those events happened over 2000 years ago, I can feel the weight of them today. I felt the weight as I've been preparing in these words, the scriptures are recounting something with such enormous eternal significance, such scandalous truth, such awe-inspiring love. It's almost unbearable. There is a lot here to digest, isn't there? Even from just one verse, let alone the whole passage. The far-reaching consequences of the cross can be quite overwhelming to try and take in and act upon. To try and give us something to take hold of as we go away and ponder the truth of Jesus being forsaken so that we don't have to be, I'm going to let another bit of scripture do the work for us. So in closing, let's turn to Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have this great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and doing all the more as you can to see the day approaching. These few verses describe for us a life as a result of what happened on the cross. First, it talks about intimacy with God. A new and living way has opened up for us. We can draw near to God. God is holy and righteous and just and pure. And there is no way that we can get into his presence with hearts full of greed, envy and pride. We have already noted how horrible our sin is and how it separates us from God. In the Old Testament, we read about how it was only the high priest who got to enter God's presence, who, who went into the Holy of Holies. After ceremonial washing and sacrifices, he could go in just once a year with a rope tied round his ankle so he could be dragged out in case he died in God's presence. 
and there was this thick curtain protecting the inner sanctuary from the outside. We think at least 60 feet high and at least four inches thick. This acted as a physical barrier between God and his people. When Jesus died for us, this barrier was removed. The, the physical ripping of the curtain represented the new spiritual reality that our sins are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And we can now enter the Holy of Holies. We have full access to God all the time. During this last year, I've been living with the reality of my family having full access to my life in a way that they've never had before. No longer has there been a separating of work and life woes, friends and fun, moments of despair and delight. It's all been on display all of the time. They see how I conduct meetings, how I hold hard conversations, how I weep with people, laugh with people. We've talked long into the night. We've trudged miles together and shared more takeaways than I care to count with no interruptions. <laughs> there has been no, I've got somewhere else to go or something else to do. Whilst this has at times led to the occasional suboptimal interaction, what it has also done is brought a new level of intimacy and trust. I've learned all over again about the importance of being available. I get this is an adequate representation of the spiritual significance of what Jesus has won for us on the cross. It's nothing like the intimacy that we really have with the Father, but nonetheless, I felt the provocation to embrace this unfettered relationship, which allows me to walk with God day and night. We have intimacy with God. Secondly, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, we can know God's forgiveness. We can know his forgiveness. We don't have to carry around the weight of sin with us. All our wrongdoings have literally been nailed to the cross in the form of Jesus. When we hear this, we can think, not me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how dark my thoughts are, how selfish my heart is. That thing that happened way back, I still carry that around with me. I don't want anyone seeing that. Well, guess what? Jesus does see it. And that's exactly why he died on the cross, because he knew you needed to be free of it. He came for the weak, the wounded, the broken and the rejected. Who is the first person we read about to confess Jesus as Lord? The Roman soldier. He was directly complicit in killing Jesus. He had his blood on his hands. No doubt he was part of the mocking crowd. Yet he could now receive that same blood cleansing him making him righteous before God. The same is true for us. Whatever our thought or word or deed, whether it was 20 minutes ago or 20 years ago, we can know the forgiveness of Christ upon the confession of Jesus. So firstly, we have intimacy. Secondly, forgiveness. And thirdly, we can know community. This doesn't just mean community or family, as we call it in terms of gathering in missional groups or for social events and so on. No, no. Hebrews talks about a different type of community, one where we spur one another on towards the image of Christ. What once was done in isolation, one man, once a year in the temple, is now done together as a family. We all have access together. Religion can start to sew up the veil if we're not careful. We start to decide who is in and who is out by our way of doing church or this way of doing church or different political views and so on. We start to divide the world by putting up these little curtains, but 
But Jesus died that there would be no division. We gather not because we're chummy with each other or we share theological views even. We gather to embrace the peace of Christ, one for us on the cross. And that is what unites us as a community of believers. We are able to start gathering in person soon. And let's remember that before Jesus, each of us comes weak and with our faults, tripping over the piles of dust that have gathered under the carpet where we've swept things away and haven't talked about them. Our starting place is to humble ourselves at the foot of the cross, to confess our sins, acknowledge we deserve God's judgment and receive his love and forgiveness. And then as we turn to one another in humility to show them the same grace and mercy and forgiveness that we don't deserve and yet we can give to others around us. As we seek to pursue the peace of God together, let's be available to listen, courageous to speak truth and generous to forgive. Jesus won a great victory on the cross for us. It enables us to be intimate with the Father. It enables us to know his forgiveness and it enables us to live in community seeking Jesus together and spurring one another along. God bless you and I look forward to seeing you all soon.